Well, good morning, University Baptist Church. Thank you for your warm welcome, Brad, and your wife, Erin. Thank you for your kindness to Julie and I, both for the last five years of knowing each other, but especially over the last year. It is a, an encouragement to know we have familiar faces and friends just up down the highway we can talk to and fellowship with. And it's also a privilege to know that even here this morning, you have with you a decent portion of folks from Fort Smith who are going to be a part of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. So if you're here from Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, would you just go ahead and raise your hand? So you guys, look at that. This is not a pulpit committee. So if you can pick out those hands after our time this morning, I want you to encourage them, get to know them, because we have been praying for you, and some of us have been weeping with tears of joy of knowing that there is a church just around the corner that we can fellowship with like you guys. You know, a guest preacher sometimes feels like he's about to get into his grandma's Buick. Basically, don't scratch the car. So as I get used to the lights and the... Uh, set up here. Just please be patient with me. But a few things this morning will help us get more comfortable with each other, and that's knowing at least three things we have in common. Uh, that first is we're from Arkansas, or many of us live in Arkansas. Second is that we love Jesus, or I trust that you're interested in following Jesus. But third, you and I have things in our life that make us afraid. What are you most afraid of? Kids can have a tendency to be afraid of the dark. Teenagers can be afraid of their parents, especially when they accidentally scratch up the family car. College students can fear sleeping in too long and missing that final exam. Young professionals sometimes fear they'll never reach their full potential in life. They never get their dream job. Midlifers can sometimes fear getting older. So you go out to the local car lot, buy a fancy car, dye your hair, your color back in high school, all to look young again. And then those in their 60s, 70s, and 80s can sometimes fear about what will happen to their loved ones. What will happen to me when my husband or wife dies? Will my children take care of me? Will my grandchildren ever turn to the Lord? You know, fear can be a ferocious emotion, can it? Fear can motivate people towards accomplishing their goals, and fear can paralyze people into procrastination of ever reaching those goals. Fear can serve like a steering wheel that can control all our attitudes and actions. And we've got some water so that if my throat is dry, I fear that you won't hear me. We can have fear creep into our lives at the beginning of a day and stay with us throughout the course of a week. So much that fear can be the one thing that keeps you up at night, where sleeplessness becomes your new friend. I mean, think about it with me. This isn't just an introduction to a sermon. Think with me. Be honest. We can all become afraid of speaking up. 
when truth and justice are being compromised. We can become fearful when certain comforts are taken from us that we've always enjoyed. We can become afraid when the future seems bleak. It, it seems uncertain. Where plans that we have prayed about and put diligently together are suddenly frustrated, postponed, maybe even ruined. We can become timid and even frightened when opposition comes our way that seems to threaten our families, threaten our communities, threaten our churches, and even threaten our health. I mean, currently throughout our world, I know you're probably sick of hearing about it, but let's just acknowledge the reality that the coronavirus, COVID-19, has touched many aspects of our life. It has become a dominant theme in churches, in homes, in hospitals, and over every popular news channel you turn on. Ever since March of this year, we face so many different responses to this virus and how it affects our life, including the thing that means the most to us, our local churches. I'm not sure how it's been for you personally, but for a few months, Sundays started to feel really weird. Sundays bled into Monday, and Monday was then Friday, and then every day just seemed to kind of go together. There was no kind of high mark of the week to look forward to that would kind of equip you for the week. And for being a pastor who was in a transitional season in the midst of this, Sundays actually became very lonely in my heart. Even to today, the internet continues to blow up with articles and podcasts that facilitate debates and discussions of how we should think about everything going on in our world. Everything from politics, police, racial injustice, and churches gathering again, all the way to weddings being held in private venues, funerals on live stream, college classes on Zoom calls, sports being postponed or canceled altogether. These are just a small sample of some of the fears and concerns we've all shared. But beloved, what is it that you are currently most afraid of? If I were to bring up a particular person's name at lunch today, and that name reached your ears, who would provoke your heartbeat to beat a little faster? What appointment on your schedule coming up has your mind racing the more you think about it? But beloved, we should also recognize that fear isn't always a bad thing. Fear can prevent us from harming ourselves, like putting your hand on a hot stove. Uh, fear can prevent us from doing things that are foolish and dangerous. In fact, the book of Proverbs tells us repeatedly to exchange our fear towards people and problems and instead place our fear in the safest place you and I can be. Where is that safe place? It's to reverence. It's to trust. Trust. 
It's to fear the Lord. Proverbs 29, verse 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. As you read throughout the Proverbs, the call to fear the Lord and turn away from evil is God's will for every person's life in this room. In fact, one of the wise and prudent marks of a Christ follower is that you think carefully about the decisions in front of you because you care what God thinks. Proverbs 22 verse 3 says, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So brothers and sisters, whatever fear or fears that we have staring in front of us today, the question we need to ask is, how should you and I as Christians respond. You see, in the midst of a world that appears to be turned upside down and swimming in a sea of confusion and fear, we as Christians have good news. In fact, we have great news. If you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you and I have a hope that transcends any crisis and any conflict the world can face. Beloved, as Christians, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. We have a living hope that should embolden us to endure opposition to the truth because of who our God is and who he is for us in Christ. We should always remain confident of God's providential care of us. You know, one old Christian catechism, if you're not into Christian history or church history, I would encourage you to maybe pick up that from time to time and read all historic confessions of faith or catechisms that embolden believers, especially in times of trial. One I will mention this morning is from the Heidelberg Catechism, of 1563. Notice what theological truth these saints captured in their generation. Question, what do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and it still upholds them by his providence? Answer, We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot as such move. How does God's 
providential care of you guard your heart and your mind from being afraid. How does the promise that we have a heavenly father who cares not only about irrational sparrows who fall to the ground, who cares not only for grass to grow on a hillside, but cares for every single want of his children that he has adopted through Jesus Christ our Lord. How does that God embolden and protect you from being afraid? Well, this morning, to answer those questions, I want to invite you to the New Testament book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. This morning, I'm going to draw our attention to Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 30. And as you're turning there, let me just catch you up to speed on where and what Philippians is all about. Philippians is really a missionary support letter. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the believers at Philippi to share how he's prayed for them and to give them an update on how he's doing. And then he expresses gratitude to them for their kind gift that they had sent by one of their members, this one member of their church named Epaphrodites. You can read about him in Philippians 2 and in Philippians 4. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul around AD 60, which was about 10 years or so from the first time Paul landed in Philippi and planted this church. Philippi was located in Macedonia, which would be located uh, today in Northwest Greece. Uh, it was a leading Roman colony, and it was a place that really wasn't on Paul's original radar. It wasn't on his top five next places to visit. But in God's strange and unusual providence, God made it very clear to Paul through a vision that he should preach the gospel and plant a church in what we know today is the first church that was planted in modern-day Europe. You can read more about that in Acts chapter 16. Now, Paul writes this letter, most likely from a Roman prison, and he gives a missionary report to the church, both in how he is doing, but more importantly, how the gospel is doing. Follow with me as I read Philippians 1, starting in verse 12. This is the word of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, 
Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you're taking notes, I have two main points for us this morning, sprinkled with some some points throughout. Point number one, the gospel goes forward in power. When Christ's servants grow downward in humility. The gospel goes forward in power when Christ's servants grow downward in humility. That's verses 12 to 26. Point number two, the gospel goes forward in power when Christ's servants stand together against Satan's opposition. The gospel goes forward in power when Christ's servants stand together against Satan's opposition. So point number one, the gospel goes forward in power when Christ's servants grow downward in humility. Starting in verse 12, if you want to look down with me, Paul begins by stating to the Philippian believers, what has happened to him? Listen again. He says, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. You see, when you read through the book of Acts, when Paul traveled from town to town preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul didn't always get the same response from his hearers. Sometimes, People heard the word, the seed fell upon good soil, and they believed. They followed Christ. They were baptized in his name and followed Jesus. But sometimes that message not only did not get received, but got hit right back in his face. You see, Paul didn't always attract crowds. In fact, he modeled much of his own Savior's ministry. When the crowds were large, he stuck to the truth. And when the truth 
is spoken, it cuts through crowds like a hot knife in butter. Paul had hostility and persecution come from those who did not love the same Jesus. In fact, that's why Paul didn't end up necessarily in timeout or on a rest stop. He, he wound up in, in prison. Look there in verse 13. He says that he was amongst the imperial guard, and he speaks about my imprisonment. But did you notice in this passage, Paul not one time complains, murmurs, or questions God's care of him while he's in prison. Did you notice that Paul speaks as if the march continues on, the mission continues on, even though he was locked up? You know, Paul doesn't seem to be fretting. But I think an honest skeptic would look at a passage like this and say, well, is Paul just trying to be a tough man? You know, put on a poker face. He's just a tough guy trying to show that, well, you know, prison's not that bad. I mean, the rats aren't biting my ankle yet. The stench isn't getting to my allergies. Is Paul getting the VIP treatment? I mean, is he getting warm, hot towels? Is he getting the best room in the house? Is Paul thinking it would be better to be in prison than be a free man? Look again at verses 12 and 13. Notice where he puts his confidence. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, this unfortunate providence that's happened to me, has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Beloved, this morning we sang together songs about the gospel. Some of you have grown up in church long enough to know the gospel is what we gather and unashamedly proclaim. You see, the gospel is good news. In fact, it's the best news. It's about God's merciful provision for your greatest problem and my greatest problem. You might say, well, Brother Blake, what is our greatest problem? Our greatest problem is this, we are born into this world as enemies of God. We are born into this world not seeking this God. We are born into this world loving self, pleasure, and money more than this God. And that's really bad news for you and I because God is just, he is perfect, he is holy, and he demands worship from all his creation, from the fish to the sea, to the birds, to men and women made in his image. You see, we bombed it, and then God displayed his faithfulness by sending Jesus Christ, his son, who nailed it, quite literally. An A-plus on the righteousness card, and he was nailed on a tree. You see, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And we would be separated from this good God from the rest of our life in the eternity in hell. But God in his love, in his mercy, sent his son, Jesus, born of a virgin, living a perfect life, was nailed to a tree, appeased the wrath of God for all of us who would turn from our sins and trust in him. And three days later, God raised him from the dead, declaring amongst the universe that Jesus has been given a name above every name. 
so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The good news is that this morning, if you don't know this God, you can today. Turn from your sins. Quit relying on your own intellect, relying on statistics, relying on the next presidential election, and bow to King Jesus. And you will have a hope that no one can take from you. You see, the Apostle Paul saw the good news as not just good on the first day he was saved, but it was good even on some of the worst days he was in prison. The gospel is such good news to Paul that Paul, get this now, saw the advancing of the gospel in other people's lives as more important to him than his own comforts and rights advancing. Did you notice what believing and proclaiming this gospel cost him? Paul says that his preaching of Jesus Christ as Lord is what got him in prison in the first place. Paul unashamedly, boldly, unapologetically proclaimed the truth about Jesus to a pagan and idolatrous culture. Paul preached the truth that Jesus was Lord and he was above and supreme and transcendent above Caesar, Nero, or any other emperor in the Roman Empire. Beloved, the gospel is good news about God's amazing grace. But the gospel will be offensive to the natural man's heart. Jesus is certainly meek and lowly of heart, but do not write Jesus off like a pansy or a coward. Jesus would stand toe-to-toe in exposing the self-righteous and self-deceived hearts of the religious leaders in his own day. You see, the gospel message not only tells us wonderful news, but the gospel message first tells us offensive news. God is holy and we are wicked and evil. Jesus is Lord. And when you follow Jesus, when you bow your knee to him, he doesn't just get two hours of your Sunday. He owns 24 hours, seven days a week. There is no fabric, there is no fiber, there is no molecule of your life that doesn't belong to him. And if you do not bow to Jesus as Lord of your life, you will spend an eternity in hell bearing up the wrath of God for your unbelief and your stubborn resistance to trust him. So if you are a follower of Jesus, here's a subject that you and I need to grasp very quickly in the first semester of Jesus' Discipleship 101 program. And it is this. If you imitate Christ, you will invite the same type of opposition that Christ faced into your life. Let me say that again. If you imitate Christ, what he taught, how he lived, you will at some point invite the same type of opposition that Christ faced into your life. 
You see, if God doesn't open the hearts of sinners and give them ears to hear his word, you will be responded to even by conservative, well-mannered people on the outside with hatred, malice, hard-heartedness, lies, slander. And Jesus told us in Matthew 5, they will utter all kinds of things falsely towards you for your following of Jesus. You see, men and women, even those who might call themselves Christians, when they're faced with the biblical Jesus and the narrow way that everyone is called to follow that biblical Jesus, even the most religious, Bible-belt, church-going folks will have their true colors exposed. Paul would tell young Timothy, who is... uh, Stepping into ministry. Some words of advice he needs to hear when his mentor would leave. He says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul was willing to suffer for Christ because Christ had already suffered for him. For Paul, obeying Jesus was worth whatever the cost, even if it meant being imprisoned, so that others would hear this good news that they so desperately needed. And we see something powerful about the message of the gospel, right? It's not just a fairy tale. It's not just some religious story that people passed down and somehow got to us in 2020. The gospel was so powerful that word had traveled far and wide about this Jesus of whom Paul kept talking about. So much that the imperial guard, these were like the SEAL Team 6. These were the high-ranking officials that would rotate from week to week guarding and watching Paul. And as everyone turned to their next shift, they got the same gospel. Shift one, gospel of Jesus. Shift two, gospel of Jesus. Shift three, gospel of Jesus. So much that when they're at the cafeteria and when they're out, you know, throwing rocks or whatever they did for fun, they kept saying, dude, that pole guy keeps talking about this Jesus. And before you knew it, the aroma of Christ was the one thing that the prison in all of Caesar's household began to smell. They knew, it says, that his imprisonment was for Christ. Brothers and sisters, do the people you live near know that you are a Christian? Well, if so, what about your life as an obvious sign that you're a follower of Jesus? When a conversation about morality, religion, family, truth come up at your job, or at the hair salon, the classroom, or the gym? Do you find yourself speaking up about Christ or shrinking back and mentioning him? What is it about how you and I live, how we talk, how we treat others, how we spend our time and money, how we raise our children, how we respond and love and serve our spouse shows others that Jesus really is? Lord of our life. You know, I wonder how many people you live near or work with or you go to school with would without a shadow of a doubt know 
that you are a Christian. You see, Paul's witness for Christ was so clear that even unbelievers who despised his message knew that what Paul said he believed, he lived out. You know, unlike maybe some wishy-washy Arkansas fans who only like Arkansas football when they're good, which might come once a decade, Paul was not a fair-weather fan for Jesus. When ministry was good, he loved Jesus. When ministry was hard, he loved Jesus. You see, Paul lived out with his own life what he said he believed with his own lips. In fact, it was something that Paul was willing to suffer and even die for. Brothers and sisters, this is a good lesson about faith. Faith that goes untested is at best a weak faith. Faith that's never put through that fiery furnace. Faith that never actually has to buck up against the current of the world, the flesh, the devil, is a faith that is suspicious at best. But listen, if you're here today as a Christian and your faith is under attack, take heart. God uses even the sinful decisions of others to refine the faith of his own. Jesus told Peter on the brink of his temporary betrayal. In Luke 22, starting in verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what type of opposition or persecution or mockery that you have even put up this week from family, friends, or coworkers for following Jesus, but I want to encourage you, if you have been bearing up reproach for Christ's name, you are blessed. What an honor it is to suffer for the name of Christ. What an honor to not be popular in the world's eyes, but to be known in heavens. Keep following Jesus. Maybe read 1 Peter this week if you're feeling discouraged as a result of your suffering for Christ. You see, Paul's humility is also a beautiful fruit of the Spirit to highlight in this passage. This screams humility. Paul was willing to suffer and endure evil as he remained bold and confident in his God. Beloved, Paul cared more about God's glory and Christ's name being glorified through his life more than his own reputation being praised by men. That's true humility. You care more about God's glory and Christ's reputation even than your own. You see, he trusted that God would use even his unjust imprisonment from evil men and he would turn it for spiritual good. I mean, think about it. Unbelievers were hearing the good news and get this. God was not only working on the hearts of lost people, he was also strengthening the faith of saved people. Look at me, look with me at verses 14 to 18. He says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. 
What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Do you see how God used the Apostle Paul's humble faith and humble obedience to send a ripple effect of gospel fruit in the lives of many? Paul says that believers have become confident in the Lord by his imprisonment. And their confidence showed itself by their courage to speak the word without Fear. Here's a good word for us this morning, beloved. I don't know how often you hear this, but you need to hear it. I know Pastor Brad and the elders would want you to hear this. It is God's will for every follower of Jesus to proclaim his word with boldness. Not brashness, not rude, but courage to open up the Bible and let God speak. This is not a dusty ancient book that has no relevance to your life. Hebrew says it is living and active. God's word is more relevant and up to date for your life than any news feed could give you. Beloved, God's word is powerful enough to convert, to convict, and it is powerful enough to build his church. I think that's just a good reminder that we should always acknowledge to God when we're afraid, when we are tempted to care about what people think about us, when we are scared of being rejected, God, give me boldness, courage. As the Puritans used to say, give me unction. Overwhelm me with your power. You see, God-given boldness to obey Jesus can cause other believers to be bold for Jesus too. Isn't that awesome? Eight-year-old boy or girl, 12-year-old boy or girl, 95-year-old man or woman can pray for boldness and God use you to send revival amongst a community. You don't need a seminary degree to pray for boldness. You just need the throne of grace and faith to believe he'll give it to you. I love how Elizabeth Elliot once put it, my obedience to God may be the means of leading someone else. So let's just pray for boldness. May UBC, University Baptist Church, be a bold church. And beloved, your endurance today, your courage today might be the one thing that the person sitting next to you will strengthen their faith to keep following Jesus. Well, he goes on to describe how some of these bold believers who are proclaiming it from pure and godly motives, from a goodwill and heart of love, verses 15 and 16. Paul didn't see himself as kind of a Superman Christian doing it all for Jesus on his own. He, he looked at these dear saints as fellow workers for the truth. They were supporting Paul's ministry and they were joining him on the same mission. But I don't know if you've ever picked this up in Philippians 1. This is one of those situations in like your small groups or your community groups where someone raises their hand and goes, well, hold on a minute. It says that people were preaching Jesus but doing it from an ill heart. Pastor Blake, who on earth would preach Jesus but have a different motive behind it? Look at me in verses 15 and 17. 
He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Verse 17, the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Brothers and sisters, what an unbelievably challenging reality that you can be orthodox in your theology and yet have a demonic agenda in your heart. You can preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, but have an ulterior motive that has nothing to do with Jesus. Beloved, that's how the enemy works. He can spit theology. He can dot his I's, cross his T's, and he disguises his servants just like himself, an angel of light. Wolves in sheep's clothing, preaching the same gospel, but having an anti-Jesus agenda. Brothers and sisters, may this reality cause you to pray for your pastor. Pray for Pastor Brad. Pray for the brothers that get up in this pulpit. Please pray for me at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. Pray that when I am up, when Pastor Brad is up in this pulpit, that our hearts have first been bowed down. Pray that we have been broken by the message we're about to preach that may break you. You see, Jesus doesn't need celebrity preachers. Jesus doesn't need celebrity churches. All he is wanting to do is display his glory through broken and weak and needy sinners who cherish his grace. Check your egos at the door. The church is for people who see their need for a Savior. Beloved, be very careful of having a head knowledge of this God, but your heart be from, far from him. Ask honest questions at your dinner table about how your family's doing spiritually. Share where you're struggling, whether it be unbelief and doubt. Pray that God would work on your heart before you ask for him to work on others' hearts. Well, brothers and sisters, you should see that Paul was not a superhero of humility. God had to bring him down to his knees too. You can read more about that in Philippians 3, about how God had brought this proud man to be a humble servant of Christ. Paul had a big view of God. Paul believed that if God can speak through a donkey in a burning bush, you can read more about that in Exodus and Numbers, he could also speak even through a sinful messenger with sinful motives. And at the end of the day, you know what Paul was most excited about? That Christ was being preached at all. Whatever lot fell his way, whether life or death, Paul kept his eyes on Christ. Look at verses 18 to 26. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. 
I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You ever been caught between a rock and a hard place? You had some options come before you and you're not really sure which decision to make? You felt conflicted inside? Should I stay in this job or should I take this other one and move out of state? Should I go to the mission field now or stay behind and care for my aging parents? Should I buy a house and put down roots or should I save money for grad school later? You know, some of us might have the luxury of multiple options while others of us don't have that privilege. And here Paul found himself in this conflicted predicament. He was in prison. Threats of death were upon him. Just imagine the guards talking about, hey, when do you think we're gonna take off his head? When do you think we're gonna humiliate him? in front of the crowds. And yet Paul's attitude was supernatural. When he could have easily demanded his human rights, his own comforts and his reputation to be protected, instead of being drugged through the mud, Paul was more concerned about Christ being honored through his life and about Christians in Philippi growing in their faith. You see, Paul viewed his life, his circumstances, in view of eternity. Paul did not look at his circumstances in light of simply next month or next school year. In essence, Paul says, if I live, if God gives me breath, I will live as Christ for Christ so that Christ might receive the glory that he deserves through my life. And if I die, I gain Christ and enter into unhindered fellowship with Christ, receiving all the eternal benefits of being found in Christ. Brothers and sisters, the coronavirus has touched our whole world and certainly our own country. And it has caused many households to think about the uncertainty of life itself. The presidential election coming up this fall leaves many people on the edge with what the future holds in our country. But I want to challenge each one of us. How much time have you prepared, have I prepared, not thinking about when a vaccine will be produced, not who the next president's going to be in office, but thinking about eternity, thinking about forever, Thinking not about your next appointment, but the judgment seat of Christ. How much have you thought about standing before your maker and giving an account for how you're living for Christ today? I think this year, 2020, should cause everyone to some degree to dig down deep and examine. What am I most afraid of? Where is my ultimate hope in this life? Is God advancing the gospel around the world, even through countless frustrated plans and through circumstances of suffering? I think Paul's words here in Philippians are both a comfort 
and a challenge to each one of us. Look again, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. You see, Paul feared God more than he feared man. He feared disobeying Christ more than gaining the approval of others. His proper fear of God and his word gave him the right perspective of how to view his life, even his impending death. I think a good question, one of those you could put over your bathroom mirror, is this question. Is what you're living for worth dying for? Is what you're living for dying for? Paul wanted to be with Christ. But if God said it wasn't time yet for Paul to leave, Paul was content. He was content to remain focused on his mission to make disciples of Jesus and to help other followers of Jesus become more like him. Look, look what he says in verses 24 to 26. He says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. If you're retired or you're on the brink of retirement, you're considering it, maybe you're seeking counsel, you're thinking about tapping into that 401k, I would implore you to look at Philippians 1, verses 21 to 26 this afternoon and and ask yourself in light of Paul's example of what it means to live for Christ and as Christ, is how will you use your latter years for him. I challenge you to rethink your bucket list. You could go ahead and pursue them. If it's to go to the Rockies, it's to go to the Rockies. If it's to visit the grandchildren in Albuquerque, it's to visit the grandchildren in Albuquerque. But somewhere in there, have you loosened your grip to think that God may have different plans for your retirement than you currently have for yourself? Brothers and sisters, think outside of yourself. Think about Christ, his gospel, and the faith of his people. The gospel goes forward in power when Christ's servants grow downward in humility. My second and final point, which is much shorter, is this. The gospel goes forward in power when Christ's servants stand together against Satan's opposition. Paul then says, starting in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. In that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear 
that I still have. Paul described what was going on in his life in Rome and how God was sovereignly advancing the gospel even through his unjust imprisonment. He then mentioned how other believers became more bold in their faith, stronger in their faith as a result of seeing his boldness in the faith. And Paul reveals the heart of every Christian that sees Christ as greater value than comfort in this life. Paul now turns the Philippian believers, he turns to them, and he tells them to basically do the same thing now. In other words, listen to what I say, live how I live. Now you, Philippian church, do this without me. He basically says this, live out together, Philippians, what you say you believe about the gospel. And he says this basically in two ways. So if you are taking notes, there's two subpoints. Subpoint number one, eagerly pursue a godly life together. Eagerly pursue a godly life together. That's verse 27. And secondly, expect opposition as you stand for truth together. Expect opposition as you stand for truth together. That's verses 28 to 30. Here in verse 27, Paul reminds them that their ultimate allegiance is always, without exception, Christ. Because our citizenship as believers is in heaven. Philippians 3.20. You see, these Philippian believers could have been tempted to be proud of their Roman citizenship. Just like many of you might be proud that you are citizens of Fayetteville. But Paul says, listen, there's an appropriate proudness, an appropriate appreciation for where God has sovereignly planted you. But it should never be a greater appreciation, a greater allegiance, and a greater hope than your citizenship in heaven. Paul basically says this, Philippians, live on earth with the fragrance to everyone you meet that your home is in another world. A life worthy of the gospel is a life characterized by the fruits of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus Christ we read about in verse 19. The fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Our lives should be characterized by these fruits as we watch over one another's lives in a local church. That's why he says right there in verse 27, listen to this, that unity in spirit and mind are essential for the unity of Christ's church. But here's the million dollar question. What should a local church's unity be centered upon? What should a local church's mind and spirit gravitate towards? Well, with a bunch of Christians gathered together in a church like UBC, I mean, there's, there's always a prone to disagreements, right? You guys don't always get along, do you? Come on. Churches is where some of the nastiest and hardest conversations you'll ever have. Come talk to me if you don't know what I'm talking about. But what does Paul say about their unity? Look what he says in verse 27. Don't miss this. He says, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of your politics, for the faith of your football team, 
for the faith of your ethnic heritage. No, it says for the faith of the gospel and not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Brothers and sisters, from the advancement of the gospel in Paul's imprisonment to the unity of the church in Philippi, it was the faith of the gospel is what Paul says the local church should be centered upon. The gospel, the good news that God has done for us in Christ, what we could not do for ourselves, and all its sound doctrine that flows from it should be the one central unifying center point of gravity in University Baptist Church's life. Paul says that the local church should be centered upon, focused upon the truth of God's gospel because the gospel is the glue that keeps us as one. If I give you anything today that you just need to kind of chew on and think about for about six days until the next Lord's Day, here would be that one statement. When a church puts his eyes on man's tradition or worldly acceptance, then Satan will have a heyday in that church. A church where the gospel is no longer center is a church where the Holy Spirit is no longer present. A church where the gospel is no longer present. Jesus really isn't Lord. Jesus isn't really worshiped. Count it the third person of the triune God, the spirit, the one that empowers the preaching, the one that converts sinners, the person of the triune God that encourages and comforts the saints and keeps the lampstand burning. If the gospel is not center, the spirit of God is not there. Every church on planet earth has an expiration date. May it be every church's local goal to be the return of Christ, not the rejection of him. University Baptist Church, one hour from you, in about two weeks, there will be a local church that by God's grace will be birthed into existence. We seek to be this kind of church as you are being a model for us. You're a big sister. We're like wee little, you know, baby, baby sister. We need your help. We need your encouragement. We need you to visit and help us actually like have the AC at the right temperature. Like we need everything from comfort of the seats to try to have something for our people to keeping us accountable to be faithful to this gospel. Listen, look back with me at verse 29. We're getting toward the end here, I promise. Look at verse 29. This is one of those texts we gloss over and we keep wanting to get to chapter 2. He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. Here's the part where you can circle in your Bible, if you're cool with that, but also suffer for his sake. Brothers and sisters, salvation is 100% a gift from God. 
Your faith to believe in him was purchased at Calvary. He gave you eyes to see. He gave you ears to hear. He put his spirit in your heart that you might walk in his statutes. Salvation, the new birth is a miracle. But get this, when he gives you the faith to believe in him, he's also going to give you the privilege to suffer for him. You might say, Brother Blake, a privilege? A grace to suffer for Christ? Isn't suffering painful? Doesn't it leave scars? Doesn't it leave a mess in your life? It does. But suffering draws us closer to God in prayer more than anything else. Suffering also draws us together as believers in a local church more than anything else. And suffering for the gospel causes the unbelieving world who has no steadfast hope to take notice. What are you hoping in? Why are you trusting in him? Why are you believing him? Those are those opportunities that we get to boast that our citizenship is in heaven. My eternity is secure. I am loved more today than I'll ever be because of Christ and Christ alone. That's why I have hope. Charles Simeon knew this. Charles Simeon was the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge, England for 54 years. You might feel like Brad's been here a long time. He ain't got nothing on Charles Simeon. 54 years. The first 12 years of his church, there was so much opposition from his congregation that pew holders locked their pews stayed away and forced him to preach to a standing congregation to fit the building where they could. One afternoon, his friend Joseph Gurney asked him how he had surmounted persecution and it had outlasted five decades of the prejudice raised against him after his many years of ministry. This is what Pastor Charles Simeon said to his dear friend, Mr. Gurney. My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I am getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the prickling of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head, Christ, has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. UBC? Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church among us. Any pastor that preaches boldly the lordship of Jesus Christ will have satanic opposition go against him. And any church that seeks to stand together for the truth of the gospel will face attacks from those who oppose and undermine the gospel. But take heart, beloved. God's good purposes will overcome Satan's deceitful schemes. God's good purposes will overcome all of Satan's deceitful schemes. Let's pray.